Uh, so let's just break open the can of worms right off the bat, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. That's what we're talking about today, okay? So just get it out there. It could have been, we could have been talking about money, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about wives, submit to your husbands, right? So uh, this is a topic that, that uh, it's easy to either just want to gloss over or look the other way or to treat it wrongly. That phrase in and of itself, taken completely out of context, can be a weapon that's used to uh, beat people down, and that's not what we want to do at all. But we want to understand that the God who loves us, who created us, uh, who sent his son to die for us and redeem us, has included in his word uh, this teaching on marriage uh, that involves wives submitting to their husbands and husbands loving their wives as the church. And so we're going to look at that today. That's what we're going at. And I just want to challenge you to think for a minute, what's your picture of the ideal marriage? Now, if you're single here, feel free to think, well, you know, you could be married to Brad Pitt or, uh, you know, Angelina Jolie, whatever. But if you're in your marriage, you're not allowed to picture somebody else, right? you got to think about what would my ideal marriage look like with the person that I'm married to, okay? So let's keep that context framed up. But what does an ideal marriage look like? What are we aiming at? What's the target that we're shooting for? What the Bible tells us is that it's a picture of a husband who's, who's owning the leadership role that he's been given, who's pouring himself out, who's giving his own life sacrificially in love for his wife, It's a wife who's encouraging her husband to lead in that way and that the two of them together are growing and becoming more than they could ever be separately and getting to know Jesus more fully together than they could apart. That's the picture of what we're aiming at. And it's important to keep that in context because we always want to aim for for the the top mark. Uh, When we come to this passage, a lot of times people will be like, yeah, but what about uh, all the exceptions, right? And every single marriage and every single person in here is an exception because we're all flawed, broken sinful, messed up people that are going to uh, pollute God's perfect plan, right? Like inevitably that's going to happen. If you're not at the point where you're ready to admit that, um, maybe you will be by the end of the day. But um, we're all, we mess things up. And so, so it's understood that that's going to happen. But what Paul's laying out for us in this passage is here's the perfect picture. Here's the ideal. Here's the target that we're aiming at. If you're not aiming at the right target, you're never going to hit it, right? We're painting lines in the, in the parking lot back here or will be soon. And uh, can you imagine if we started on one end and we said, all right, we want to do a straight line to the other end. How do you do that? Uh, the way you don't do it is you don't look down and be like, okay, I'm just going to start drawing a straight line, <laughs> and I hope I meet up with that point by the time I get there, right? What's going to happen? If it's me, it's going to turn into like some cursive, like they're going to think it's a crop circle. They're not going to know what it is, but it's not going to be a straight line. Uh, but if you look to where your target, where you're going, and you keep your eye on the target, you can do that. If you ever try it with a piece of paper, like just grab a pencil, put two dots, If you just, like, stare at your thing, you're going to end up, like, down here somewhere. But if you stare at the line you're drawing at, you can shoot it over. So the point that I'm making probably way more than I need to is that we've got to aim at the right target. We've got to aim for a godly marriage. We've got to look at the perfect picture of what that looks like um, in order to understand how to aim for that, how to shoot for that. Beyond that, before we dive into this, this is the big consideration and almost the unspoken but really big important principle here today is does our worldview shape how we read the Bible or does God's word shape our worldview, right? Does what we believe, uh, what we were raised in, we were traditions, hey, this is what I saw my parents model, this is what I saw in a movie, this is what I read in a magazine, this is what I, uh, does all that, do we bring all that and then we come to the Bible and we're like, all right, how do I shape this to kind of fit with what I already believe? Or do we start here and say, all right, what does God's word say? And then how do I apply that to the messed up, everyday, muddy situation that I'm bound to find myself in? But how does this remain uh, the anchor? How does this remain the main thing. And so I want to challenge you that the, obviously what I'm 
desiring to live my life, and what I would encourage you towards is to live your life in a way that, um, where this is the anchor, that this affects our worldview, that our worldview doesn't affect the way that we read this. But the problem is, is that we all have a worldview, and so when we come in, we'll look at this, and there'll be some times when God's Word strikes us a little bit sideways. We'll be like, man, that, oh, I don't know. I got to think about that. I got to process that. What does that mean? And for many in here today, this will be one of those passages today. The other th- cool thing that I want you to see is that the picture of marriage is, is beautiful and it actually helps us to know God better. One of the things that we talk about here often is that um, our reason that we exist is to know God and to glorify him. Whether you're in a relationship with Jesus, whether you're not in a relationship with Jesus, it doesn't really matter. Every created person is created for one purpose, to know God and to glorify him. That's ultimately the goal for every single one of us. And so my goal for you today is we see how marriage helps us to know God better. And the cool thing about that is whatever your status is in here today, so whether you're single and you'd like to be married, uh, whether you're um, married and you'd like to be single, <laughs> whether, you're, whether you're happily married, unhappily married, whether you're widowed, divorced, uh, whether you um, are very happy in a life of singleness and that's what you feel like God's called you to, anyone, all of us can come together and say, hey, this isn't just instructional on marriage. This is instructional on how to know Jesus and how to see marriage as a picture of Jesus. And so in that sense, every single person in here can be helped and led forward to a greater knowledge of Jesus through this passage. And the final thing I'll say as pretext before we dive into it is just, if we can look at the four spheres here, we've been talking about this through this series, that there's uh, four spheres in our, in our relationship that discipleship doesn't just happen individually, one-on-one with Jesus, but discipleship happens holistically throughout our lives. It's making every aspect of our life fall in line. And throughout the book of Ephesians, we see these pop up in different places. And so Paul started by talking about with our relationship with Jesus for three chapters. He pounded that out. And then he started talking about what's our relationship with the family, the church. And then he talked about how last week Keith preached about what's our relationship with the world supposed to look like. And now we're coming into the home. And so what I want to encourage you is that uh, you may say, hey, I, I understand. I'm really, I'm excited about my relationship with Jesus, and when I go to church, I'm, I'm really living in unity and peace with the brothers and sisters there and out in the world in my workplace. People respect me, and, they, and, and I work hard and diligent, and I'm, I'm caring and loving. Uh, but if you go home and you're not modeling it there, then it's, 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 you're not growing. You're not maturing in Christ. You're not, you're not moving forward, that this needs to be in every single aspect of our lives. And the home is crucial. The home is your first line of discipleship. It's, it's the first opportunity you have to live in, in community uh, with others following Jesus Christ. And so it's really important that this happens in the home as well as everywhere else. Now we're going to begin uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. You can turn there in your Bible. Um, I'm feeling super hot up here. Is anybody else feeling like hot? I, is it better to have the AC on and I can just preach louder? <laughs> I'm seeing some nods. Let's do that. I just want you guys to know when we went to Brazil, there was no AC in Brazil, and it was hot. So however hot it is in here today, it was better in Brazil. I mean, it's, no, that's not true. It's better, temperature-wise, it's better here than Brazil. Let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 says this. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. I want to pause there just for a minute. He says, because the days are evil, right? So you might read this passage and you'd be like, okay, yeah, sure, Paul, in a vacuum, in a perfect world with perfect people, that's what marriage would look like. But that doesn't, you know, my, my situation is messed up by sin. Paul acknowledges that. He says, hey, listen, the days are evil. This is a sinful, broken, fallen world. And because of that, even more so, you need to walk with wisdom. So the picture he's going to paint here is not in a perfect world. It's in our fallen, broken, messed up world. This is how we're supposed to live. 
Continue on, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so what I want you to see here is that everything that's about to follow flows out of mutual submission out of reverence for Christ, that we're called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In fact, all those verbs that are in there with the ing endings on it are, are playing off of the idea of being filled with the Spirit. So he says, be filled, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to be addressing one another in psalms. You're going to be singing. You're going to be making melody to the Lord. You're going to be giving thanks. And you're going to be submitting to one another. And so submitting to each other is the outflow of a Spirit-filled life. And this is so crucial because we can't do this in our own strength. We can't just walk out of here and say, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be a better life. I'm a wife. I'm just going to try really hard to do these things. We're not going to be able to do it in our own strength, but it flows out of being filled with the Holy Spirit and then submitting to one another in love. I want to show you one more thing here in a diagram. We've got this, this discipleship wheel that we've been talking about. It comes out of this book, Discipleship, and uh, it just paints a good picture of what we see happening in our lives and in our church You're dead in your unbelief, and then there's a moment where you realize your sin, and you repent, and you call out to God, and you are born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately you're in this infant stage where you just, you don't know what's right and wrong, and so you're just starting to learn, and so you start to take bad things out of your life. You start to get some good things in, Uh, but if you hang out there, you end up in just this self-centered kind of me, me, me mentality, like, I got to get better. I got to do this. I got to change this, and you don't look up, and then the path to maturity is to look up and begin to become other-centered. And that's what mutual submission and love is all about. It's about being centered on others. It's helping seeing others' needs before your own. And this is so crucial in a marriage relationship to put your spouse's needs ahead of your own, to mutually submit to one another out of love. And that's how we begin to move towards maturity. And so as long as we're focused on our own needs, we're never going to make it around the wheel. And so here's a question for you. If, if you're married here today, here's the question. Is your marriage more about fulfilling your needs we're trying to fulfill your spouse's needs. What's the center of, the, of your marriage in your heart when we access the part of your brain that is thinking about marriage? Is it, is it about like, oh, I married this person so that they could fill this void in my life. I needed companionship, and I needed this, and I needed that, and they can fill that. Or is it, wow, God placed me with this per- person in, in a partnership because I can see how they have some needs, and I can help spur them on to become the the fullness of what God has created them to be. What's the, the heart of our marriage? What's at the heart when we think about marriage? Which direction does it go? And most of us, let's be honest, it's about what can I get for myself? That's our default mode. And so to go into other-centered mode is the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's breaking bad habits and cycles and, and ignoring the worldview uh, that the world espouses around us. And so let's look at what this whole idea of mutual submission and love looks like in marriage according to Scripture. And we pick it up here in verse 22. It says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Challenging on both ends, right? Everybody's, everybody's getting challenged by this passage. And one of the things that, that's not incredibly clear from our English text is that in verse 21, where you see submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, uh, the word submit in verse 22 is actually implied. So if you were to read it more literally, it would say submitting to one another out of reverence for, for Christ, wives to your husbands. So it's a, a continuation of that thought. It's like, hey, everybody, we need to be submitting to each other out of love. Wives, submit to your husbands. Uh, like Christ is the head of the church, your husband is the head of the house, and, and, and husbands, uh, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And so what we see here is that when we come to marriage, there's this, this, this truth. We should submit to one another out of love, and then there's this other truth that runs alongside of it, which is this idea of male headship in a relationship. And it's a biblical concept that we see all the way from Genesis all the way through, and it's one that, at times, let's be honest, our society does not feel real comfortable with this idea, right? They're like, well, no, shouldn't we be equal, equal roles, equal everything, anything you can do, I can do better, no, you can't, yes, I can, no, you can't, yes, I can, right? There's a whole song about it, right? It's a, uh, we're, we're called to, uh, our society would tell us, like, hey, they're, they're, no, let's forget about roles, let's just, let's just focus on equality, but what the Bible says over and over again, and what Peter and Paul reinforce going all the way back to Genesis, is this idea of male headship. Now, what does this passage tell us? about male headship. Well, there's something that's said, and then there's something that's unsaid. What is said is that a man is not supposed to use male headship as an excuse to get his own way. In fact, he's prohibited from that. He's supposed to use his role as a leader to benefit and to bless and to love and to pour himself out for his wife. But that's, that's, that's the stipulation that's placed upon it. Hey, you're in charge, but you've got to make sure that you're making decisions that are blessing her that are fulfilling her, that are lifting her up and sanctifying her and helping her to be all that God created her to be. What is unsaid is exactly culturally, specifically, what this means in our relationships. So it doesn't say men are the only ones who are allowed to ride the riding mower. Men are the ones that have to drive on long car trips. Men are the, men are the ones, uh, you know, who have to run the weed whacker or whatever, you know, whatever it is in your thing. Women, it doesn't say women are the ones that have to do all the dishes or, or make the beds or whatever. None of those cultural things come in. And what, what he does is Paul says, hey, here's the reality that going back to Genesis, God created man and he created woman and he gave them specific roles and responsibilities um, but it's up to you and your culture and your context to figure out what does male headship look in your relationship. Hopefully, as, as husbands and wives, if you're husbands and wives out here, that you're having that conversation. Uh, you're saying, hey, what does it mean for you to be the leader in this context? What's biblical? What's unbiblical? How, how does that work itself out here today? Guys, you might want to have a baby, but you can't have a baby, okay? <laughs> There's some things, right? God has not given you that role. That role is not yours. You, you, don't, you don't get that privilege of going through, you know, nine months of carrying the child and severe pain in the labor room. You don't get to experience that, right? Because God did not bless you with that. So, so that in and of itself by our physical nature points out the fact that God has created us with different roles 
and responsibilities, different abilities. And so we need to embrace that, not, not buck against it. Now, let me say, in context with that, our culture has moved in, in a much greater way in a lot of ways of recognizing that men and women are created equal in the image of God, equal standing before God, equal ability to, to work in, uh, for the glory of his name, that there's equality between men and women in many, many ways. But equality doesn't mean that we have to all be able to do the exact same roles. In fact, Scripture says that in a home, that there's a call for a man to take a leadership position. And so, if you don't like it, argue with Scripture. And you can argue with me too, but, <laughs> but we're going to come back to here. So, um, so, one of the questions that we would ask is, um, or rather, I would say this. A wife's submission demonstrates her love for her husband. And husband's love for his wife is played out in submission. It's kind of like two, point, two sides of the coin, right? You uh, demonstrate your love by submitting to me. I demonstrate uh, my, through submission, you demonstrate your love to me, right? It's, it, it, it flows. It's, it's a circle. It's, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. So let's look at what this looks like in the lives of the individual, in the wife and in the husband. How does this play itself out in a marriage? And let me ask you this. Have you ever been a part of a team where there was like a really great leader? Maybe it was a sports team. Maybe it was like a uh, history project at school with like the smartest kid in the class or whatever. But you got paired up with like a really good leader and you were more than happy to submit to their leadership because you knew that they were going to lead you to a great result. I started thinking about this this week and with the NBA finals going on, I started thinking about the greatest basketball player that ever lived. And it's not LeBron James, just so you know. (laughs) It's Michael Jordan, right? Michael Jordan, uh, in my opinion and objectively, speaking, is the greatest basketball player that ever lived in. So I started thinking, oh, man, maybe I'll do some research and find some quotes from people that played basketball with Michael Jordan, because that must have been amazing, right? Like, he must have been the greatest leader. It must have been a joy to submit and play with him. Well, I was listening to the radio this week, and they came on and actually started talking about the exact opposite thing. Michael Jordan was, winning is not everything, it's the only thing. All he cared about is winning. If I need to score 70 points, that's what I'm going to do. I just want to make sure we have the W at the end of the game. And so while his teammates, they liked winning, but they started to resent the fact that they were just a cast of characters, especially Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant, who were the other two pretty good players on the, on the team. They, uh, actually, they were talking on the radio how at one point they started complaining against him, and so Jordan was like, fine, I'm not going to take any shots next game. And so for about a quarter and a half, he, didn't, he would not shoot the ball. He just kept dishing it off. And so finally, after a quarter, they're like, please, start shooting. <laughs> we're sorry. We need you to do this, right? But he was, he was a dominating leader. He said, hey, I don't care about you. I care about the end result. That's a picture of what we shouldn't model in our marriage, right? Say, hey, you just, need to, you just need to be quiet and do what I say because I know where we're going, right? That's, that's not loving leadership. Loving leadership is the kind that people can't wait to follow. And so I thought about the next best example that I could think of, uh, which is the holiday classic, White Christmas. How many of you guys have seen that movie? Anybody? A few, a few out there. Not as many as I'd hoped. Okay, that's all right. Um, so in that movie, there's, a, there's this, these old war veterans and... and um, they have this general who they love, right? And they would do anything for him, and they, they have this, we'll follow the old man wherever he wants to go. It's like this happy song, right? Because we love him, we, right? They love the general. So if he says go to the front lines, they're going to go to the front lines. If he says do, whatever he says to do, they're going to do because they love submitting to him because they know that he has their best interest at heart, and he's going to lead them in the best possible way. That's a picture of it's a joy to submit to a good and godly leader. And so, uh, husbands, let me challenge you. If your wives don't want to submit to you, maybe it's because your leadership is not worthy of submitting to. But let me also share with you that 
none of our leadership is worthy of submitting to. So wives, don't use that as an excuse, right? It's, it's, it's you're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We have a picture of this in the Old Testament. David was anointed as king, but there was one problem. Saul was the original king, and he was still king, and he didn't like the idea of this guy David coming along, and so he was trying to kill him. He was chasing him around the countryside, trying to kill him. David ends up hiding out in a cave, and Saul, out of providence or whatever, comes into that cave. And so all of his buddies are like, this is your chance, David. You can kill him. You can take him out. I mean, eye for an eye. Like, he wants to kill you. You get him before he gets you. And David goes up, and he doesn't kill him, but he just cuts a corner of his robe off. And even in doing that, all of a sudden, his heart is filled with grief. He's like, wait, what have I done? Listen to what it says in in 1 Samuel 24. It says, uh, Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing as he is the Lord's anointed. See, David's heart was broken not because Saul was this good, worthy guy and he felt bad that he did. It's because of the position that he had that was given to him by the Lord. And in doing that, he was disrespecting the Lord. And so, wives, when you're called to submit to your husband, it's not because your husband is so great or so worthy of of being submitted to, but it's because of Jesus. It's because of the position that Jesus has placed him in. And so you have respect for the position, even if the man at times may not be fully worthy of of that respect and that following. It's more out of respect for God than it is for man. Uh, I want to send you guys an email this week of some of the resources that I found in looking through this. And this is one of, the, one of my favorite books on marriage. It's actually called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Relationships and Roles and Relevance. It's a book about the Trinity. Uh, but what I found is that understanding the relationship within the Trinity, it's the greatest picture of relationships that we could ever have. And so when we want to know how to have a good marriage, we don't look to Kim and Kanye, right? Or we don't look to, uh, you know, whoever, whatever the couple is of the moment. We look to the relationship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect love, in perfect loving submission to one another. And listen uh, to what Dr. Ware has to say about this. He says, to insist on egalitarian relationships, egalitarian meaning completely equal, no distinction of roles, exactly the same. To insist on egalitarian relationships where God has designed structures of authority and submission is to indicate, even implicitly, that we just don't like the very authority submission structures that characterize who God is and that characterize his good and wise created design for us. But when we see this structure of authority and submission, when we see that it pictures God himself, that the members of the Trinity exist eternally as totally equal in their essence, but distinct in the ordering that marks their distinct roles, then we realize that what we have chafed at is at heart the very nature of God himself. Seeing God as he is then may provide for us a stronger basis to look afresh at human relationships of authority and submission and to see in them the wisdom and goodness that God intended. And so what he's saying here is essentially in the Trinity, there is this authority submission relationship that goes on. The Father sends Jesus. Jesus says, hey, I don't do anything except what the Father tells me to do. I do everything for the glory of the Father in the garden. He prays, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He willingly accepts this role. He models this for us. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and Son to empower the believers to live lives that they couldn't live otherwise. And so if we resist this whole concept, we reject God himself in some ways. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians eleven three. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ 
is God. We've got to be willing to understand that in God's created order that there's, there's ways and functions that we're supposed to operate that he wants the best for us. Now let's flip the coin. How does this look for a husband? How does a husband's love demonstrate his mutual loving submission to his wife? We're given some examples of how Christ loves the church. That's a pretty high bar to set, right? Uh, do The way that Jesus loves the church, that's how I want you to love your wife. I want you to give yourself up for her. I want you to pour yourself out to sanctify her, building her up, making her more like Jesus. It talks about cleansing her with the washing of the water and the word. And there's a picture here of this idea of baptism, that it's not the water that cleanses us in baptism, but it's the water as the symbol combined with the word of God. There's power in that. There's a symbolic interaction tied to the truth of Scripture that, that cleanses, that purifies. And then presenting her as holy. And John Stott talks about how that in a, in a loving relationship that we get the privilege of presenting our spouse, taking our wife and presenting her to God and saying, here's this beautiful creature and I, I did everything I did to make her more fully herself. Not less, not to stifle her, not to hold her down, not to restrict her, but to allow her to fully be all that you created her to be. To allow her to explore every gift that you've given her and use it for your glory. That's our job as husbands. Are we doing that? <laughs> Men, if you're married, are you doing that? It's convicting. And then it seems like he takes a step back because he says, hey, instead of getting all ethereal, and I know Jesus is a high bar to set, think about it this way. Uh, you love your own body, right? When you're hungry, you go get something to eat. When you're tired, you, you go take a nap <laughs> or you drink some coffee, right? You, you respond to your own body. Respond to your wife in that same way. Treat her as your own flesh. Nourish her. Care for her the way that you would your own body. And that's a piece of being united in one flesh. And he says this is a profound mystery, but this is a picture of Jesus and his church. It's amazing. And it's hard to fathom. And so what do we do with all of this? How do we apply this to our lives, our messed up situations, the, the things? Well, let me give you a few, a few general ideas. I'm sure every person in here has a slightly different take on it, but if you're currently married, or if you aren't currently married, but you want to be, if you're single and you would like to be married, this gives you a really clear picture of the kind of person that you should be looking for. Not just attractive and funny and cool and all those things, but, but women, is this the kind of man that I would want to follow his leadership, that I could come along and support, and that the two of us together as a team would be better than we are separately? Men, looking for a wife that... Uh, that you could love for the rest of your life, into your 80s and 90s, that you would say, I'm willing, that's the, that's the kind of woman that I would die for today and that I would also daily give up my rights for for the next 60, 70 years uh, that I'd be willing to pour myself out for. Is that the kind of person you're looking for? If you're single and it's God's plan for you to remain single, as Scripture talks about, that that, that can be God's plan for some of us, it can help you not to resent marriage, right? Sometimes you're just like, man, I'm tired of hanging out with married people and hearing them talk about married problems and all they want to talk about. I, I don't care about any of this, right? Sometimes we can become embittered about marriage. And, and what I want you to see is that when you see a couple who loves each other, when you hear people talk about marriage, it gives you an insight into knowing God better, that you should embrace that. You should be able to joyfully celebrate the singleness that God has given you while also celebrating uh, the view of marriage and how it helps us to understand God better. If your spouse is not seeking to fulfill the calling that we looked at here, it doesn't eliminate your duty to uphold your end of it, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. This is a consistent thing in counseling. It's like, hey, I know what I'm supposed to do, but my spouse isn't doing what they're supposed to do. So, so you know, 
I just got to respond to that. I can't, you know, I can't carry all the weight by myself. I just want to encourage you. Uh, the rule of thumb is you need to lay your head on your pillow at the end of the day and, and say, God, with a clear conscience, I did everything I could to follow after you today. Um, my spouse isn't there right now, but I pray for them based on your scripture. If it's a man, I pray that he would own the leadership role that you've given him and he would become the kind of man who would pour himself out for me. Uh, men, you know, I pray for my wife that she would be willing to submit to my leadership as I seek to pour myself out for her, that she would see that I'm willing to sacrifice and give my life for her. I pray that she would see that, God. And this is where discipleship is so key because so many times in the, in the fog of war, we can't see the other side of it. We don't understand. We, do, we don't have clarity. There's so many times where we're just like, biblically, I don't know what the right thing is to do right now. My marriage, it, it, it's, it's messed up, and I don't know how to move forward. And that's where you need to seek godly counsel. You need to dig into a scripture with another believer and have them praying for you and speaking truth into your life so that you can understand it. And that's why going it alone is, is not the way that God intended for us. He wants us to live in these discipleship relationships so that we can learn and help each other. If your marriage is okay, but it's rooted in something else, it can be so much better. This is God's perfect picture. This could be the idea of what he could do in your marriage if you're willing to receive it. And so I'll say in closing that the cool thing and the amazing thing is that it always centers on Jesus, right? Jesus is at the center of everything that we do. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see him modeling for both of us exactly what we're supposed to do. Jesus is preparing to pour out his life for his bride, the church. He's preparing to die, to give everything for his bride. Husbands, look at that example and follow that. And as he's doing this, he gets on his knees and he prays to the Father, Father, I don't want to do this, but nevertheless, I submit to your will. Not my will, but your will be done. Wives, look at, look at that example of Jesus in perfect submission. Jesus is always our perfect example. Jesus always lays the way for both men and women. He's our example to follow in leading and in submitting. And so we're going to end today with, with taking of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to invite those that are helping us to come up and to get into place. I'm going to invite the band to come forward and prepare to lead us. And I want to share something with you really cool. At the Passover, Jesus was uh, about to be crucified, and he gathered his disciples together. And during the Passover, uh, he took the bread and the cup, and he instituted uh, the Lord's Supper. And this is what he said. He said, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And how cool is that, right? So it's a picture of his body broken for us, his blood poured out, but the cup is also a reminder that it doesn't end here, that the end for every single one of us is the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we'll be reunited with Christ and we will dine together, that, that we will join that cup together. Listen to what it says about this marriage feast in Revelation 19. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so I ask you today, are you invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Single, divorced, widowed, married, wherever you're at today, 
Do you have that relationship with Jesus Christ so that you know that when this all ends, it ends in a wedding feast? If you don't know that today, please come talk to me afterwards. I would love to talk to you about what it means to put your life uh, in the hands of Christ, to submit to him as your Lord and Savior, and to know with confidence that when you die, you will spend eternity with the one who poured himself out for you. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you uh, for the example that we have in Jesus of, of loving submission, of submitting love. We thank you for this, this great picture of what a, a marriage should be, whether we're single or married or wherever we're at, that we can look to this perfect picture and it can help us to know you better. And we thank you for that. We celebrate that. And so as we prepare to take Lord's Supper, I pray that you would bring to our heart, if there's anything we need to confess, that we would confess it. We would repent. We would lay it at the foot of the cross. And then we would come and we would take of the bread and the cup. We would remember the sacrifice and we would also look forward to the future that we have with you. I pray this in the name of Jesus.